And now, coming to you live from Chicago, Morley and Medina, not the one in Turkey, it's the all-new Relaxed Crude Street Podcast with Gary K. Wolf, Jonathan Stranan, back with us again after Episode 7, special guest, Amelia Beamer. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, Amelia. I thought we were supposed to, like, go, yay, like, after that intro from Jonathan, and then we didn't. Actually, there are two of us, so we could have done that, I suppose. So let's do it now. (laughs) Yay! Yay! Okay, I won't take that as some kind of like meta commentary on my life, you know, kind of like we were going to go yay, but we didn't. Oh, well, he's sitting there looking sad. We should probably go yay now. We don't really <laughs> mean it. It's not, not a real yay. It's kind of like, a, you know, the Mexican wave half an hour later, like, yeah, yeah. One little yes. person all alone. I'm just going to lapse into self pity. You two talk. Good morning, Amelia. How are you? Good. Good. This is great. This we is the first time should, ever we've had we more should, people in my time zone than in yours, Gary. <laughs> uh, that's the first time that's ever happened. I'm sure that's true. Uh, but more more important than that even is that we are now looking back at this historical, um, oh, we're on podcast number 3500 or something now. And Amelia was one of our very first guests. I think was our very first guest. was the very first the- guest. Yeah, it was the very first guest, and I think my novel was about to come out or had just come out. My Yeah, The Loving Dead had just come out. Yes. It's exactly 101 podcasts ago. You don't have black spots, do you? Sorry? You don't have black spots, do you? No. Sorry, Dalmatian joke. Sorry, don't worry. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> 101. Okay, it took me a minute there. I don't have, a moment. I don't have a moment. daughters to remind me of that frame of reference. You know, a man's best friend outside of a podcast and all that, but don't worry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, let's go back to Charles's favorite joke, Amelia. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's not. Oh, okay, we won't. So let's tell not. me, it's been 101 podcasts, Amelia, at one a week. Uh-huh. That's nearly two years. What have you been doing with your what time? Up? What up? Yeah, what up? <laughs> There are so many ways in which to answer that, and um, and I'm casting about for one. Um, I have made many changes. I um, not that long ago decided that I had kind of hit the glass ceiling at Locus, mm-hmm. and much as I liked the job and the people there, um, it just the the energy for me being there was kind of wrapping up and it was time for me to go try and do some other stuff. Sure. So I ended up living with some friends in the UK for six months. Um, and now I'm living with a friend in Perth <laughs> and I'm doing some freelance editorial work and I'm writing and I'm doing that thing that writers want to do where they don't have a full-time job that they go to all the time and, and, and that saps them and, and then they go home and they're like banging their head against the keyboard like, how do I make myself do this? And, and the way I've been able to do that is by living very cheaply. Mm-hmm. Honestly, mm-hmm. I'm living with friends. I'm, I don't have to look after a whole apartment on my own, you know, like, so that's what I'm up to. But cool. you're also back uh, back to writing science fiction when you'd been away from writing it for a while. And one of the things, and you and I talked about this last night, full you know, full disclosure, we talked last night, uh, that one of the things you've got for somebody who's still really young by my standards is you've looked at science fiction from a lot of angles going way back to when you were working with Clarion and, and you saw the field from the inside and then you saw it even further from the inside at Locus and, and then you wrote a zombie yeah, novel. It's it's really dark yeah. in there. <laughs> well, <laughs> the inside of science fiction is dark. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's um. really dark. I was actually telling somebody about my first. I think it was my first time at ICFA, and 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 Rick Wilbur was asking me about Clarion because I was I was an administrative like a student administrator back in the day and I started like talking about like this is actually how it is and and he was like she talks like she's 40 (laughs) (laughs) right yeah I'll take that as a compliment like yeah um there was a question in there somewhere and I'm and I'm getting back to it but it had to do with what does it feel like to come back to writing science fiction after taking some time away and and Gary you know bless his cotton socks has been around you know has been there for me he's heard all my all my stuff of like you know back in the day when I kind of lost interest like that he was there when I was into Olaf Stapledon he was there when I mm-hmm. had sort of lost 
interest in the in 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 the the pulps and the research that I was doing, and had moved on to reading like Amy Hempel and Laurie Moore, and not really being that <sighs> clued into science fiction as the center of my universe. I was still reading it a bit, but mostly had gone off into the sort of American short story, um, mm-hmm. mainstream stuff, and and to his credit. Um, Gary helped me see this, but Charles Brown, I think, decided to still respect me, even though I wasn't that into science fiction at the moment. You know, mm-hmm. like that wasn't mm-hmm. what what I was really into. I was I was into this this other stuff, even though like I would have my mail delivered to Locus, and you know, like I remember he like opened up a package of mine once and was like read half a collection of like Laurie Moore short stories and was like, I don't really understand why you're into this. I'm like, well, why don't you read it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah but well, Charles still respected me you know yeah. like and so I was like okay well science fiction is clearly not the be all and end all of the universe got it yeah and uh, so well that, that the reason that interests me was because I, I mean one of the things we've talked about a, a few times are how people read science fiction or don't read it and uh, most of the people that I yes, imagine a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are people who read lots of science fiction a lot of the time. And we don't hear often from people who read it occasionally. Uh, we tend to assume, I think, in this field that people either read science fiction or they don't. Uh, or they either read literary fiction or they don't. And going back and forth, I think, is something that's probably a lot more common than most of us suspect. I think that's true. I think if you look back, I mean, this 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 touches on the conversation we were having with uh, Kids Johnson a little bit a few weeks ago. This, this whole idea that there are people who only read one particular way or have a set of rules within which they read. Now, I mm-hmm. appreciate that there are people who prefer by taste to read one particular kind of fiction. And that's perfectly normal and I understand it. But I, what I don't understand are people who actually have rules. You know, like, I, I, I just read this and this is separate from that and that's separate from this. Because I don't know how you can read Kelly Link stories comfortably but be unable to read that little bit further along the spectrum in the more literary sort of New Yorker area where they're very, very similar kinds of animals. You know, mm-hmm. if you I mean, if you read Kelly Link, you can read Tin House and the New Yorker and you don't have to feel sequestered. Um, and I mean, sh- you know, surely most readers are going to be, you know, they're going to be happy reading and the new Neil Stevenson novel, then picking up a crime novel, then picking up a nonfiction book, and that I mean, isn't that what mm-hmm. mo- well, that's what I would do. Uh, I guess, I guess what we're touching on is more than just what we do or don't have to read. We're touching on the idea that for some reason there is a closed-off mindset that goes with it, and can you be immersed in our field without having a closed-off mindset? And, and the irony or the whatever that surrounds that question, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. Is that almost exclusively the people who create science fiction, as opposed to the people who read it exclusively, don't don't actually read it exclusively. They do read all that other stuff when they're create, you know, as, as creators. Mm-hmm. You know, some do. I mean, some. I, but but I think the the notion that uh, that some fans have, or that young writers have, that uh, readers are are constantly reading the competition and seeing how they can. I I I don't know very many established writers who do that at all or who worry about it much at all because you've got your own particular vision that you want to pursue and uh, you're not going to... I mean, let's take your Mars novel, Amelia, which I know is only in the beginning stages, but um, do do you feel any obligation to sit down? Because there have been a lot of Mars novels in the last 20 years. Do you have to read all of them to write a new one? I reckon you don't, but I don't want to be the idiot who's up on a panel and someone's like, so what'd you think of that? And all I'm like, uh, I mean, well, like, that. <laughs> there are, okay. So there are ways in which like I read out of fear. You know? <laughs> there are ways in which I read out of fear of being exposed as an idiot, you know, like that's not good. I don't want to. No, 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 no. Welcome. Welcome to the crowd. Of course we all read, so no one can sit there going, you didn't read that? Oh, my God. In fact, Wait, you must be an idiot. It's actually worse than that, you see, because the, the tr- part of the truth is some of us read to make sure we can say that. Right. You know, You know, why did you read the new Ben Bova book? Just so I can poke fun at everybody else when they say they didn't. <laughs> ah, well, there's That's that. That's a yes. horrible reason to read something. <laughs> well, you wouldn't or read there, Ben Bova otherwise. 
there's at least one mutual friend that all three of us have that frequently begins a sentence with, well, of course you've read, mm. and then mentions an author or a title which I have not heard of before anywhere in my life. And it, 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 it completely leaves you um, in, in this odd position. It also happens – it happens more than once when people find out I review science fiction or have written books about it. I'll see somebody – usually somebody at a world con. This does not tend to happen to places like World Fantasy or, or Reader Con where some young enthusiastic person assumes that what he has read, and it's usually a he, um, is exactly what everybody else in the field has read. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's, there's this assumption that the shape of your reading is the shape of reading, which, of course, is not true for any two people. Oh, and the, and the, and the shape of your reading is the shape of the field, in fact. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, have you, did you ever see a while back, uh, NASA did this, I think it was NASA, did this fantastic, like, photo of the visible universe, and it shows you this kind of uh, elliptoid shape with all these billions and billions of little galaxies and stuff in it. it looks quite amazing. Yeah, great, great, great image. But it's like, you're still seeing through one particular eye, one particular gaze, what they could scan, right? Mm. And it's like that for looking at science fiction, you know, because it's like, here's, here's where my gaze has fallen, that is the field. And if it's often that black bit where you read, you freak, then it doesn't exist. Right. Which is mad. Well, let me ask you as an editor for a minute, because just sticking with the Mars topic, when you did Life on Mars, you were doing an anthology of the most of one of the two or three or four or five most common settings ever in science fiction. Were you worried that you were going to get contributions that looked too much like maybe Arthur Clarke's The Sands of Mars or too much like um, A Martian Odyssey or... Too much no. like the Martian Chronicles? Not at all. I wasn't remotely concerned about such things. I think that's the point where you hamstring yourself with unreasonable and ir irrelevant fears. Uh, yeah. First of all, the book was aimed at a young adult audience and up. The likelihood that they've been reading Stanley Weinbaum in their spare time is low. So I'm not mm. that particularly concerned <laughs> that they may or may not have read A Martian Odyssey. Um, in fact, the likelihood that they've read a lot of Bradbury is still fairly low. At the, uh, so that doesn't worry. But also it's like the whole point of a book like that um, is to be some kind of a sampler. And so you go out and you get a group of people and you let them do what they will. What you do hope that they don't all do, um, oh, plucky young person in a situation where is likely to die and everything falls apart kind of stories. Because that, you know, there, there will be a few obvious um, model stories. It's like there's an anthology I've referred to a few times that I turned down the opportunity to do, uh, which was an L, uh, one uh, based around the um, uh, sky, you know, the ele space elevator, right? Yeah. Uh, people were saying, well, hey, we should, you know, should do a space elevator anthology. And I was kind of like, uh, no, I don't want to do a space ele elevator anthology because really your only options are to do everybody dying or everybody, you know, sort, you know, the whole thing falling down and being a disaster or the whole thing coming up. We've lost Amelia. I'm just going to keep rambling until she comes back, I hope. At that point in the podcast, something again went wrong. This happens on the Could Shoot podcast and we do apologize. So this bit is the bit that joins that bit to this bit. That was so smooth and so professional. And I have a much that's, better that's connection. I'm copying my favorite podcast in the world. Anyway, the whole anyway. is it, well, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> what was I talking about? It can't have been that interesting. I was talking about doing the space operas, space elevators. Yeah, basically, I had been asked to do a space elevator anthology, and really, the, the all you can have is you know, sort of people fall in love or kill each other going up and down the space elevator, or the space mm. elevator falls down, and there's an enormous catastrophe. Well, this was a pro-space elevator book, so it couldn't fall down. So really all you had left was either an adventure on the elevator or um, uh, something, you know, they, they put it up, yay! And 12 stories of they put it up, yay, sounds pretty boring, right? Oh, dear, yeah. So, and the thing with the Mars book was, hey, look, there's all sorts of freedom as long as it's not too samey in terms of the actual type of story tried. And, and as it turned out, I don't think that people did end up doing stuff that was too much the same. And I had to cheat a little bit. I dropped in a reprint because that, that seemed to work out. Something that's wow. I've actually been considering with my current book, because I'm currently working on Edge of Infinity, which is my um, intrasolar system uh, space opera, ad space adventure, whatever anthology that, that I'm doing for, wow. um, for Solaris. It's coming out just before Christmas. And you might point out that, yes, it's the first day of July here in Western Australia, and it's coming out before Christmas. And I haven't handed it in yet. Oh. That's oh. okay. We move quickly at this end of the swimming pool. 
Um, That's right. But I was thinking about dropping in Stan Robbins, asking Stan if I could drop in Mercurial into the collection because the opium, opening to 2312 is the greatest example of it in the world. It's such a good... And that whole idea of the, you know, of the city Mercurial going across the surface of Mercury is so attractive that I kind that's of wanted to put into the book. And that's kind of what I did with Life in, on Mars when I dropped in Stan's story at the end of the book, you know, because it kind of fits as a great coda. But anyway... I've gone too far off topic. No, Gary, I was not. Well, no, it's not really off topic because there are readers. I, there are I, I, years ago. I was t- teaching a class, and I had uh, the editor of Downbeat magazine visit my class. And Downbeat was and is the great jazz journal. It was yes. the locus oh, of it, the yep. jazz field. And um, and we got into a conversation. I was talking to him about this kind of science fiction fans who assume you've read exactly what he said. They're nothing like jazz fans. They're nothing like somebody will be listening to Dexter Gordon in 1963 and, and complaining, ah, he used that phrase back in 1954. He's getting repetitious. They're just absolute fanatics about everything has to be completely original in the entire history of the field. Yes. Wow. Can I, can I just say something that, that you made me think of, which is, which is completely off topic. So there are barbershop conventions, right? Like, Right. I'm sure there must be female, but like my dad used to do barbershop and there. So all of these men would get together and they'd be at this convention and there would be a competition and there would so forth and so on. And like in the evenings, you know, like or in between programming or whatever, like there would be all these groups of men like standing around in the bar, in the lobby, you know, like the kind of the way we do when we are chatting. But they're singing. <laughs> and they're singing tags, right? They're singing the end of the song, you know, like. You kind of know what I'm talking about, but like, that's what they're doing, and I'm like, wow, that sounds way more fun in some ways. Like, can we all together and sing? Like, well, can, can, can I say that sounds better than the scariest convention I ever saw? Because, uh, as you know, sometimes science fiction conventions are co-located with other conventions. The one oh, yes. that springs immediately to my mind is uh, it was the Denver Worldcon, where there was at least three other conventions in the same oh, yeah, uh, facility. Convention there was indeed medical right. equipment convention or yeah. something. Well, some years ago, Marianne and I travelled to Sunny Hobart. It's not sunny, and uh, we were enjoying the local weather. No, we weren't. And uh, there was this terrible noise every morning. Right? I'm going. What is that? Oh my God! We're right across the road from a church. Why is? And we're going. But it's not like Sunday. What's going? They were having the Australian Bell Ringers convention. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> and those people were scary. I mean, really scary. And very, very into their selection of appropriate ropes for bell ringing and all that kind of thing. But then I guess, to some degree, uh, it must look the same way looking in at a science fiction convention. I mean, here on the national media last night, they were covering the Melbourne Comic Convention, which is going on at the moment. And they're uh-huh. astounded because they got something like fourteen or 15,000 people on the first day. Uh, which for an Australian genre convention is quite quite staggered. But it was all, let's look at the funny people who are all dressing up weird and right. all that kind of a thing rather than anything else. Mm-hmm. The, the sort of coverage you would fear rather, or expect skeptically rather than anything else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all conventions that probably look weird from the outside, I don't know. Right, well, that's where it just leads me to think, like, have we gotten so far into the inside that we don't know what it looks like from the outside anymore? And I say this with some reservation, because I'm not entirely sure what I'm saying, but there's a level where, you know, like, if I am trying to track my reading such that when one of 400 people that I really respect, you know, says, have you read X, I want to be able to at least have heard of it. Whereas maybe that's that's kind of smaller than everything that's going on in literature. I think that's exactly what all of us have to do. As we've all noted multiple times, the the days are decades past when anybody could expect to read um, any significant portion of science fiction that's coming out or to know everything that was in every issue of every magazine and read every novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, uh, what I... One of the things I like about Locus and I like about online venues is that, yeah, I want to learn about the books that I'm not going to get to because every year when we have to write those damned year-end review <laughs> columns, I'm feeling like a complete nincompoop because, oh, oh good, that, must, I've that, felt must have been, that sounds like it would have been good. I should say something about that novel. It's important, <laughs> but I haven't read it. Oh, yes, I know. Oh, I, it, it's, it's, and and it's, become, it's gotten worse and worse for me over the years. Uh, I was sitting and thinking about this as I was trying to work out what I want to do with my time over the next five years. 
Mm. And I realized that for the last 10, because I haven't ri- I have not written a book review since 2002, mm. which, which was um, the la- when I became the reviews editor of the magazine. And it wasn't a decision to step down from reviewing because I was a reviews editor. It was because I was just too committed for time. Mm-hmm. And then over that 10 years, I now read, you know, much, 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 much more science fiction or short science fiction than I ever used to. And mm. now I look at these piles of novels go past. And, you know, we get to the end of the year and you're supposed to make some kind of statement about the shape of the year and what's happening. And I love that stuff. I'm really, really attracted to it as a conversation. Mm. But you're kind of going, but I don't have, do I have time to read Existence by David Brin? Do I have time to read Bowl of, Bowl of Heaven by Niven and uh, Benford? Do I have time to read the new C.J. Cherry book? And also this book and this book and this book and this book. Mm. And so many go past. I mean, every year Locus must mm. shortlist what? Something like 100, 100, 100 or so books on the recommended reading or more? And once upon a time, oh. I, mean, I, I remember I hit a peak in the 90s where you know the recommended reading list came out and it would be, I've only not read five of them. Wow. And now it's like, oh, I have read five of them. Yay! Yeah. Okay, so, like, this is taking me back, you know, like, yeah. but but where it took me back to when I was actually, like, you remember when you were, like, a teenager and you had, like, or a kid and you'd exhausted, like, this is how it was for me. You're a kid, you exhaust the children's section of the library, you start in on, you know, the horror section and right. uh, science fiction section. And, and you're just trying to, like, randomly pick stuff because you're not brave enough to talk to a librarian or <laughs> you don't think that the librarian's going to respect you or, or whatever it is. I don't really remember. You just start grabbing stuff at random <laughs> because you have no real guidance. And... And you're and you're a twelve year old reading Stephen King, you know, like and Dean Koontz and 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 all sorts and and you would find an author that you really liked and you read would read everything that was there and then you'd be excited when a new one came out. Somewhere along the line, I lost that because I just know too much now. Yeah. You know, like I still have the authors that I'm like, oh my god, a new Kelly Link, you know, like but. For yeah. the most part, I am overwhelmed by choice rather than hungry for new stuff. That's true. Uh, in fact, I've been fe- the feeling I've been feeling is almost a, a mild sense of panic in a way for 2012. I thought 2011 for me felt like a, a thin year for reading. And by that I mean I, I wasn't constantly looking at books flying past that I wish I had read. Mm. And when you talk about having a population of writers, a, a community of writers that are individual, personal to you, that you're aware of, mm. that make you th- that you that you're, you go, you sit there and go, oh wow, that's the new this book, right? Yes, I have those, but now there's a pile of others as well, and you suddenly find it's like I, you, know, you suddenly find that someone emails you a special sneak copy of a book you shouldn't have, shh, and you don't get around to reading it until it comes out anyway because you didn't have time, mm-hmm. right? Or you're going, but I, ha- yeah. How can I? Not- I mean, how can I not have read the new Hanu Ryan Yemi book already? And I want to read Gwendolyn Bond's book because that looks really good. And mm. Libba Bray's new book sounds amazing. But really, I have to have read, you know, the new, um, say, Stan Robinson because I haven't read it yet. And actually, there's 12 anthologies sitting on my table and 30 issues of magazines, and I actually have to read those. Right, but is the okay? So in in some ways, like obviously. I, I'm I'm not at Locus anymore. I'm not no, in no, the industry anymore. But you're in the like, field. Yeah. But I'm in the field. But but you guys more so. I'm thinking like there's a level where you kind of have to know what's going on professionally. But there's also a level where if you didn't, if you hadn't read the new whatever, like oh, how is that actually going to inconvenience anyone in any real reality? Or is it just going to be like, I don't want to be the one at the convention who's like not read that book, you know? That's what it is, I think. You, you, you don't want to be it left is, out of the dialogue. And there's also a thing where, you, I mean, there's something a little bit almost embarrassing where you find yourself, yes, you're at whatever convention and you're, you're on a panel and people suddenly realize you've not read the last four Neil Stevenson books because they're all too long. Right. And also, I mean, well, I, I mean, no, you, sorry, yeah. here you go, yeah. Well, it's it's one of the things where I actually, Amelia, I'm envious of the situation you're in right now because um, you, there's no professional obligation to know anything about the field other than what you choose to know about the field mm. or what you choose to read. And there is that sense of, of having an infinite choice and none of which is an obligation. I remember um, – Years ago, I mean, this is one of the things. This is the old codger. This is me, the old codger speaking, because I'm doing my old codger voice here. You young people don't know this, but 
there's a point at which when I was much younger, I was thinking, okay, I'll, um, I'm, I'm going to you know, study English literature in college. I'm going to go to graduate school. And I gave up science fiction for a while. And I kept thinking, well, I can get back to it. I can catch up with it. And there was a gap in the you know, 60s and 70s when I wasn't reading a lot of it. And then I wrote a book about science fiction and read so much of it that I OD'd and like, spent six months reading nothing but Hemingway. Um, and <laughs> Just to clean out your palate. <laughs> well, it, it, it was kind of something like that. I did that. that. Right. I did that. It, well, yeah. I spent uh, a year but, reading John Irving, but anyway, keep going. Well, John Irving is the same kind of thing. And, and throughout <laughs> this period of time, there's this sense that you have that there are all these books out there, and I can, I can forego reading those books for a while because I'm going to do something else for a while. And uh, I, I kept thinking, okay, I'll sort of balance science fiction reading with mainstream reading and with catching up on classics I haven't read, lots of Victorian novels I like. Um, and then uh, that kind of went down the tubes when, when Charles came along and had me start writing for Locust, which is, what, 20 years now almost. Mm -hmm. And that messes up that schedule. The more you... The, the, the more you age, the more you realize that there are books. You're not going to be able to get back to all those books. You know, mm -hmm. There are books never, ever going to read. Um, uh, mm -hmm. You, you want to catch up on the classics? Um, fine. It's not going to happen. You're going to catch up on some of the classics, but you're always making a choice. Am I going to keep up with what's going on now, or am I going to try to broaden the scope of what I'm reading in the field? And Amelia, I remember when you were going through this program, and Karen Vernon went through a similar program. Let's look at the classics. Let's get a good historical sense of the field. Mm -hmm. And it was great that you were doing that, but I don't think very many people bother to do that. No, and I'm stunned because I can look back at all the stuff that I haven't read and be like, oh, I don't feel that <laughs> good about like all this time that I put into this because like, what was I doing that I still haven't read all of this other stuff? You know, like, and that's just not a great way to feel about something that is fun, right? We're in literature, yeah. we're in this field because we like it. Yeah. Why do we feel yes. like this about it? Be I think because we get so invested. I mean, the feeling that I have is there's the constant feeling that you're about to miss the bus. Mm. You know, it's like there's where all the great books are. There's where all the cool conversation is. And if you can just read mm. enough, I mean, people will let you in the conversation. There's no door. There's no barrier other than having read enough and and being um, a little bit able and interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're inherently dull, you're kind of in trouble. But other than that. But anyway, uh, and so I, I see these books going by, and, and, and what I feel like is that you know there, there there is that bus being missed. But the other thing, and it's, it's something I think I've referred to before, and it it comes. I remember having a conversation with with Marianne my, uh, about a book, and she held it in her hand, and I you know she said, well, there's this book, and I said, I am never going to read that book ever in my life. Mm. And she's like, what do you mean? You're like 48 years old. Hopefully, you'll live a little bit longer. You could still read it. Mm. And I'm like, no, that book is two years old now. There was, you know, when we when the recommended reading issue of Locus comes out, anything published before January of that year is now dead to me forever until I like leave Locus and I'm in this situation. So the likelihood of me reading, like if I didn't read, say, The Last Witchfinder by Jim Morrow a couple of years back, mm -hmm. I'm never going to read The Last Witchfinder by Jim Morrow. You know, yes, I read 40 Signs of Rain, but I didn't read 50 Degrees Below. I will never read 50 Degrees Below. It, mm -hmm. I have no prospect of it. And part of me thinks, I mean, it, it's, it's a mercenary, well, it, it's a pragmatic, not a mercenary, it's a pragmatic approach I take to have a chance of keeping up, but it's also the cost, uh, you know, a loss in the nature of the, what we're doing because I would like to be able to read what I want. But I, I think, I mean, it's a different thing. We all, you when you're really actively uh, involved in Locus, Amelia, mm -hmm. and now to some degree watching it, you're, sort of, you're keeping track of the conversation and what people are talking about. When you're actually trying to read it all, you have to make these sort of cutthroat decisions about, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit disappointing. Uh, but but the thing is, if you don't do it, you're also also always aware. I'm like, what I'm aware of now is I'm really well read in some areas for some periods of time, and I'm very well read in novels from 1980 through to 2002. Mm -hmm. I'm very well read in short fiction from 2003 through to 2012, but my novel reading is kind of a bit patchy between 2002 to 2012. I'm extremely well read in Australian science fiction up to 1999 or 2000, mm -hmm. and very poorly read thereafter. You know, but you're talking like a professional again, you're, because there is there are professional obligations that you have, and every once in a while I'll run into somebody at my university, for example. And they know I'm involved in science fiction. 
And they'll come up to me and say, I just discovered this terrific novel, and why didn't you tell me about it? And it's Podcane of Mars, and it's really good. And, mm-hmm. That's so sweet. The, the professional part of me says, well, yeah, you know, you should have read that when you were 12. Uh, and the realistic part of me says, no, we encounter science fiction on a day-to-day basis. What's coming at us from the future, literally, what's being published next month or the one month after that. And a lot of the people out there who are not stone science fiction readers year after year are still discovering Heinlein and Clark and Asimov and Bradbury and maybe even Olaf Stapleton. Oh, yeah. Right. right. Okay, so I have a question for you guys. Hmm. Do, you like, yeah. do, you, do you like reading? Sometimes. Uh, sometimes I hate it. But, but, you know, I have loved it in my life, and when I'm enjoying it, I love it, but sometimes I hate it and I resent it, yes. Yeah, that's honest. That's real. That's the level of reality of once, like, I was on a panel some years ago um, with Lev Grossman and some other people um, about, like, how do professionals, like, have leisure reading? And... Mm-hmm. We finally were starting to say stuff like, I have a chair that's in a separate spot, and that's where I do my leisure reading, you know, because as professionals, I think we really struggle with, like, there's so much to do for work that you can't really switch out of work mode, you know, or if you switch, like, how do you justify to yourself the guilt that you're otherwise feeling about picking up a book that has nothing to do with work? When you can easily justify a book that did have something to do with work, but was not necessarily what you would be reading if you didn't have this job? It's really hard. I mean, you know, it really is. Because you do get these weird feelings you never would have anticipated. You know, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I find that I, I have completely not reading, not online, not looking at devices kind of stuff I do for relaxation because I can't be near reading. It drives me mad. Uh, I also, like, I'll hit points where I just, I, I just clog up. I can't read very much because mm-hmm. I have all the stuff I have to read. And I'll find, as it happened to be yesterday, so it's interesting that you, you, you touch on it, and I don't know what your experience is, Gary, but I was reading one particular book, and I became aware I could be reading this book that would just be fun. I wouldn't really talk about Did it much. Did you get mad at the book you were reading because you didn't want to be reading it? Uh, sure. But but I get, I get I re- okay, this is just me, right? But I resent books that, I, that take me too long to read. Yep. I get angry with them. Even if I'm enjoying them, I get angry with them now. Because if the book's 600 pages long and it's slightly slow-paced because that's what it needs to be, it's not a f- failing, mm-hmm. it's just the nature of the story. Let's say it's a little big by John Crowley because, let's face it, there are no slower books on earth than that. Um, mm. What happens is I begin sort of – I start off, I'm loving it. It's beautifully written and it's evoking all these images and it's really clever. And suddenly it's been a week and I've read 100 pages of it and I've got a pile of other books and this thing is not going any faster. And I've been reading it for two weeks now, and it's beginning to drive me mad. And at the four-week mark, I'm going, I don't care. you know. I just have to toss this thing and move on because I can't justify the time anymore. And I'm just cross with it because it's taken that long. Yep. Well, that happens to me mostly because I've got a deadline uh, looming, and if I get, you know, and and this has happened more than once, and it's not, and it's getting more and more of a problem because of the lateness with which advanced reading copies come out or proof copies come out. Mm. um, I remember getting um, Neil Stevenson's Read Me about two weeks before deadline, and I thought, this book is like 1,100 pages long, and I'd really, and, and, you know, in a normal world, if I didn't have a deadline, I would think, wow, I've got a thousand pages of Neil Stevenson. I can spend the whole summer reading this. This is going to be great fun. Instead, I'm thinking, okay, I got to get through it. I've got to just sit down and take hours a day and read. Fortunately, it, that particular book is very fast moving, and I thought it was delightful. It's a you know it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a sure. novel, but when I get when I get something like that, and this is one of the reasons that you 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 can't, or at least I can't. Other people are better at it than I am. If you've got a, a series of novels. Um, all of which are, let's say, the length of a Peter Hamilton novel, uh, there's a point at which you just say, this had better be really, really different from anything else I've read like this because <laughs> if I devote this time to it. Every book you read is another book you're not reading. And when you're up to 1,000 pages, every book you read maybe two or three other books you're not reading. Well, okay, so, so at the risk of uh, making many enemies and um, deconstructing the entire importance of the field, I was trying to think of the reasons why we would keep up. Gary and I were talking about this the other day. The reasons why we would want to keep up with what is being published right now, as opposed to having a free range lifestyle where you read whatever, you know, you come across and, and, Mm -hmm. and 
talk to whoever about whatever. And I was thinking, okay, so one reason is you want to read your friend's stuff. Yep. You know, like, yeah. obviously you want to read your friend's stuff. You want to read the stuff the, uh, the, that's coming out by the people that you like. And, and you want to be at least somewhat informed for the awards that are coming around. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a level where, like, awards are important. Awards are important. That's why we spend so much, like, time and effort talking about them and thinking about them. They are important, you know. But <sighs> there's a level where I just want to sort of poke that and say, like, how important is that? You know, like, because it seems to be, like, I'm not sure which end is the tail and which end is the dog anymore. Let me give you a, a, a response of sorts. Have you ever been faced with a puzzle? Maybe it was at school, maybe it was at wherever, and you pu- you work it through. Maybe it's a math problem, and you get it right. You, you know, you get it correct, and you have that eureka moment of understanding. Mm-hmm. It's like a endorphin rush. It's a drug high kind of a thing experience. There's a moment that comes for me every now and again where I see it. I see in my mind a holistic whole of the field, mm. and that's a drug high for me. Right. You know, I kind of go, oh, okay, yes, I can see this goes to that goes to this. And this is working out there. And I know what's happening. And I just feel good. I mean, I've got a, you know, sort of we all have moments when we daydream. And every night before I go to bed, I'll have a moment or just before I go to sleep, there'll be some little daydream about how life might be different in some good way. And one of the things that happens is I think about, gosh, imagine if you could have a moment where. You understood everything, right? You, you understood everything that happened in the world. Every single you'd, you'd read every single book that was out there, and you had in your mind for a moment a complete holistic picture where you really understood what was really happening. And wouldn't that be the most awesome feeling in the world? Mm. That's what I chase sometimes when I'm reading. Are you are you, are you are you getting religious on me, Jonathan? No, I'm not. I thought that I, was sounds. I mean, that's, I know that's rush feeling. I know the feeling you're talking about. I, I have lower expectations of it. So that's the feeling I get when I, I get a printer installed on my wireless <laughs> network. Gary, like, I think oh. you're more jaded than Jonathan. This is my. I, I, I may be, but that's, I don't expect a lot from life. But if the damn printer finally works, it's two days. But anyway, um, there is that sense that there is something there that you can grasp, and it's it's always it's always a little bit beyond your grasp because it's always changing. But if it weren't always changing, it'd be boring. Right. Um, so, so the field that you're and, and Jonathan's absolutely right. We see these books coming flying by us, you know, two or three a month, and uh, and you begin to get. We we've, we've sounded this way on the podcast before that um, if we don't see anything interesting. Uh, over a two to three week period, we both start muttering, "Well, it's a it's a dried up year. It's not oh, bad it, year, it, yeah, bad year, yeah, bad year, and so forth." And we're thinking, "Wait a minute! <laughs> if we don't get a good novel every six weeks, that means it's a bad year." <laughs> well, well, in fact, if we don't see a, see a, a a spectrum of good material, you know, mm-hmm. where some old pro you know surprises us with a book that's back at their prime, and some young guy or young girl or whoever pops out a great new book, and we go, oh my god, it's, we've, got a, we've got a hot debut, and we've got this, and we've got that. And what's more, yeah. because we our, our heads have been shaped, or our expectations have been shaped by the damn recommended reading list, I, I need, for this to be a good year, I need some good science fiction novels, some good fantasy novels, some good YA novels, some good first novels, uh, some good collections, some good related works, or it wasn't a good year, right? Uh-huh. Which is rubbish, really. What we're saying is that the, for, for us, or for, for what I'm saying is, for, for, you have had, had a good year. You have to have had a good recommended reading list. Right, and that's a completely artificial thing okay. because what what you're saying now, Jonathan, is all about like we need six of that and twelve of that and ten of that, and that's how we're going to work. That's 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 yes. the minimum required. Whereas yes. before you were talking about a feeling, an emotion, a high, a connection, an yeah. understanding. And mm-hmm. that isn't, I mean, like, isn't that like the point of science fiction? Like if we go all the way back to the sense of wonder? Yeah, oh, it is. And, and, and it's also that thing where we talk about uh, the, the whole dialogue of the field, yeah, which we talk about constantly. It's being able to see the dialogue happening, not worrying about shaping it or anything else, just seeing it happen and go, oh, yeah, this is that, and that is that, and who really ever expected that? And this that surprised me. I didn't expect to see that happen. Mm-hmm. And it does happen. You go, wow, I love it when you surprise me. Though I was thinking yesterday about something which comes into this, and that is how, how do you let somebody surprise you? Because what we actually do when you're in the position we're in, and maybe other people will disagree, but I won't believe them, 
is you set up a batch of filters to protect yourself against the volume of material being published. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all we see. I mean, whether you even just glance at Locus recommended recommended read or not recommended the Locus forthcoming books, which is at best a subset of what's being published, right? Um, yeah. And you sit there and go, "Oh my gosh, I couldn't possibly read all of that. I couldn't possibly read all of that." And so you start filtering, and then you find out that you realize that somebody who's been around for a while has written two or three formulaic books in a row, and because you, you know, you're no longer reading strictly for general pleasure, you don't look at their formulaic book. Well, how do you let them surprise you when they actually do do a book that isn't what you expected? Because you've long... I mean, Ben Bova, I made a joke about Ben Bova, but the truth is I loved reading Ben Bova when I was in my late teens, early 20s. Mm. Read a whole batch of his stuff. And then I found I couldn't read him anymore. And I know we had somebody join Locus for a while who loved his work and was a champion for it, but nobody was really sold on the idea. And it all seems formulaic. Well, what happens if Ben Bova stays up nights, writes a great book, and we just don't look at it? We don't pay attention. We're closed to it. How do we stop ourselves closing ourselves off to the possibility of something surprising? Or even well, if it landed in your lap, how are, are you actually going to engage with it or, or is it going to be that thing where we risk like getting upset with a book because it's too short or it's too, you know, or too, oh, yeah, yeah. or, you know, like, how do we enjoy it? Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you no, here. No, no, no. Well, but, but, but there's also the, 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 when you, when you talk about seeing a, a new Ben Bowen novel, which may blow us out of the water or a new Jack McDevitt novel, there's still, there's still a sense of we're watching the usual suspects. What worries me is that there are whole regions of fantastic writing going on that we haven't traditionally paid attention to and that we barely see because sometimes they're not published by genre publishers. Um, and yet sometimes that's where the most exciting stuff is going on. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I've got three novels uh, before me now and I've not, I've started a couple of them. I've not read any of them. One of them is by a writer named Alain Mabanku who was born in the Congo. One of them is by a writer named Sophia Samatar. This is a novel coming out from Small Beer who uh, was from Sudan. And another is a writer named, oh, I have to look up the book, Kay Miller, who's from Jamaica. Uh, and I'm, We've already seen Karen Lord, and we've seen Nalo Hopkinson, and we've seen Toby Buckle. So we know that there's a lot of science fiction and fantasy and horror coming to us from quarters that we haven't been looking at before. And now we have to watch out for those quarters as well. Or we should watch out for those quarters as well, I should say. Darn those quarters. Mm. With all mm. their stuff. Not more yeah, stuff. I get, back to, I get back to just feeling kind of overwhelmed. Like, yes. how do I even know what's important? And then the other thing which really drives me mad, and I don't know if it's affected you, is to me the worst part is that we have this conversation we're having now, right? Where we all sit there and go, gosh, we're overwhelmed. There's so much stuff. We're filtering. I hate the long books. And then somebody comes mm-hmm. up to you, right? Some perfectly nice person. And they say, oh, oh, you, you work in science fiction. What's great? What should I be reading? What's, what's the best stuff now? And you go blank. You got nothing. Uh, You're going, um, <laughs> um, I don't know. You just got to read a bit about it. Oh, maybe that Paolo Bacigalupi book or something. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, we lost somebody. Hello, anybody? I'm still here. Are you there? We lost Amelia. She laughed and then she left. She was laughing and she's gone? But she, she, hopefully Amelia? she'll return. Amelia, Hello. Hello, Amelia. Yay! I'm not even oh, going to okay. patch over that. That was a piece of Skype oddity. Please, you were laughing and, and filled with humor. Continue. Wait, who was talking? You were talking. I thought I... Oh, you didn't hear me finish. <laughs> I, no, I was just talking about that feeling where you know, somebody asks you for a recommend, you know, recommendation of the hot stuff and you're going, I just got no idea. You go blank. Have you both had that or is that just me? No, I was oh, all the time. absolutely like who has not felt like that? Who has worked in this industry for any amount of time where you're just sort of like, oh, I don't even care anymore. Like I, <laughs> I know so much stuff. I don't know where to start. You know, like how do well, I I've end got, up with this? Well, it's a different question when you get somebody who says, oh, you're in science fiction. I, I used to like that when I was 12. What should I read now? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. I remember, okay, so that uh, when, uh, like a million years ago, Locus had a booth at Comic-Con that we shared with the Asimovs and Analog guys. Oh, I remember. And we decided that that, uh, the the catchphrase for Analog was science fiction for your dad. Because everybody (laughs) would come up and be like, I think my dad would like this. (laughs) That's awful. 
Oh, speaking as a dad. No, speaking as a dad, go away. No, that's awful. There are 25-year-old dads. I mean, gosh. There are, that's true. <laughs> but their kids aren't showing up at Comic-Con tables. Well, I, I think, actually, what we should do is we should come to an agreement. And I think what we should agree is the answer is always Nigel Fanthorpe. Oh. That's a good idea. That, I will, that one. That will put Lionel them off. Fanthorpe. That will put them off. They will leave us alone after a while. Okay, so 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 Karen Fowler has a rule that like she tries really hard not to say that she's read something she hasn't, and I just found myself having a really hard time saying, "I've never read Nigel Fanthorpe." I've never read Nigel Fanthorpe either. Oh, thank God for that! Aren't you referring to Lionel Fanthorpe? You're right. You're, you're, I am. I'm not even getting his name right. That's a big Who happens to be my I'll favorite writer? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. You've read them all. The collected works. I've, Absolutely, and um, oh dear, John. Who is that guy, John Creasy, the British writer who wrote like eight hundred mysteries or something he's, under he's various? Alive, things. be nice, you know. He can't be alive. I don't know. I'm making that up. He can't, he can't have been alive when he wrote those novels. <laughs> That's awful. He was probably alive when he wrote those novels. Okay, possibly. <laughs> but anyway, he had a series of science fiction novels under some pseudonym who's, who one of our listeners will, will fill in for him because I'm blanking on it right now. But yes, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is that the, the nice people are being nice because they, they just want to sort of... You know, they're, they're, they're expressing a little bit of interest. There you are. You're still playing with that kid's stuff and you're still interested in science fiction. Isn't that sweet? Um, uh -huh. You know, I'll show a bit of token interest by asking you to tell me who you like, I guess. Or they mean it. I mean, I bought someone at my day job just recently and I'm kind of going, yeah, I do the day job. It's fine. But I do this science fiction stuff that I'm reasonably well known at. And they're going, oh, I used to read fan, you know, fan I read epic fantasy all the time. What should I read? And you're going, oh, I don't know because I really don't know. Well, yeah, okay. So, so Gary and I were chatting the other day, and and we yep. we had we had virtual. Well, it was real, but we had sort of a virtual morning tea with my 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 housemate here, my friend Sue here, and um, and and then Gary and I started sort of talking shop about like, oh, we've got this book and that book and the other, and 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 Gary was like, oh, and I got this book from this person, and and it was like from that person, and 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 he was like, yeah, well, it's like this is the plot, and 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 Sue was sort of horrified that we could talk about it. List like that's a real like, I think there are some people, you know, <laughs> for whom reading is still pure. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's still like. Like, I want to think that those people are real in the book. Like, the people in the book, they're real. That's a real story. I want to know it. I want them to be able to tell it to me. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're able to talk about plot or, you know, like, in the jaded terms that we were was just horrifying to her. And I was like, wow, this is telling me something about, you know, like, the, the level at which I, you know, have become overwhelmed, you know, like, so, and, and therefore jaded. I don't know. I mean, if I understand you correctly, I mean, some of it is surely just the byproduct of anybody who's who's involved in producing something, you know. Yeah. Uh, cars are mysterious, but not to a mechanic. Mm. Uh, Gary can't connect a printer, but there are people who do it for a living who would look at you like, yeah, I know how to, I can build one of those out of spare parts and a bit of sugar kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. And you're sort of like, oh, my God, really? You do it like that? Um, so some, I think that's what some of it is. Some of it really is not a jadedness as it is just being inside. And yes, if you talk to, to people who write, they'll talk to you about making sure you use, you know, you know, use a scene for more than one purpose because if you don't do, do that, then the book's going to feel, feel like it's got yeah. slow pace in it, all these kind of things. They're technique and technical stuff. Um, but I, do, I, I don't know if it's a pure thing, but I am intellectually aware of the mindset that Probably we all used to possess at one point where people who wrote weren't real people. There were names on book covers. The book was the entirety of itself, and you didn't really think beyond it a great deal in terms of who wrote it, how, why they wrote it, what they had in mind. What you thought about was, I'm immersed in a story, and then I come out of it the other side, and gosh, that was a great book. Oh, and yeah. and at, at most, your your thought of, about the writer is in terms of it being a brand name that you go back to to try and recapture that experience. Because mm -hmm, you're sad because it's over. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and, and you learn to recognize writers, but I think the uh, conversation that Amelia and I were having with her uh, her, her, her housemate was, was, was interesting to me as well because uh, everybody in this field complains about spoilers. And for her, it was like saying anything at all about the book was a spoiler. 
Oh. Anything, anything that's going to set up her expectations in some other way that she wants to set them up. And I thought, yeah, that's really fine. And I, 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 a lot of readers are like that. I mean, uh, my, my daughter, Julie, and her friends, all of whom are like in their late 30s and early 40s, as far as I know, uh, the, the, the men in that neighborhood don't read anything as far as I can tell. But the women are all reading uh, Fifty Shades of Grey or mm-hmm. 40, 50. And, and they're clearly, uh, it's uh, it, it's something which is important to them in some way. I keep hoping, by the way, that all these millions of people who are reading 40, they're, they're going to accidentally stumble across Stan Robinson's 40 Signs of Rain and, <laughs> and start reading that trilogy thinking, oh, we're doing numbers, 40, 50, 60. Here's some more 40 and 50, 60 novels. Uh, and I'd oh. love to see make of that but well that's true though we have to be very careful when i was listening to somebody be critical of 40 shades 50 shades of gray the other day now i've not read 50 shades of gray and i honestly have no and you know intention of doing it but there is a terrible habit that does pop up particularly in our field it may be elsewhere but i see it in our field where people read stuff that we don't especially value um or think is particularly interesting and we end up by extension rubbishing the reader you know, kind of like, well, you read Fifty Shades of Grey or Twilight or whatever it is, and those are crap books. So obviously oh. you're an idiot. Right. And that we do need to be very careful of that because that's not true. The, the, the truth of it is, I, I remember having this conversation. There was an, an absolutely abysmal um, Anne McCaffrey novel that won the Hugo one year, uh, All the Wares of Pern. And it's just a piece of junk. It's awful, I think. Uh, I'm willing to be quite... Sort but of, it was a fan award, and it was a fan well, case, and it was the, that's the, how it came around, right? Well, yeah. we're having a, a conversation, and for conversation, insert argument. Uh, in the ha- up at the house in in Oakland, over the recommended reading, because I mean there was this book, and did it belong on the Hugo? I'm going. She's putting dragons on spaceships, Charles. My God, it's rubbish, and it's not particularly <laughs> well written and everything else. He's going. What you have to allow is there's a special, strange skill. To writing for large numbers of people mm. we can't quite quantify it we don't know what it is but it's there and it's real and she has it in spades mm. uh-huh. you know and there's part of the thing with 50 shades of gray setting aside the you know the the, the uh, royalty check envy that comes with 50 shades of gray for a minute well, yeah. uh, which is perfectly understandable there's an element where i mean somebody said to me they're like mills and boone with porn and i'm like Okay, I haven't read them. I've got no view on that. But if that's what they are, I can certainly understand why they're selling. Sure. Um, that's what I've heard. Yeah. But somewhere in there, there's more to it. Because, I mean, frankly, badly written Mills and Boone with porn is just going to be rubbish and people won't pay much attention to it. Or not for more than about 10 or 15 minutes at a time. Um, so there has to be more to it than that. And some of it must be that those books fulfill a reading need. You know, and all these bestsellers that we don't get and we don't value fulfill a reading need. And th- this kind of actually touches on a bigger topic, and it's one that I'm determined we're going to come back to, which is uh-huh. is how we as people who have a very artificial approach to, the, to, to something like the field deal with stuff that's popular because we deal with it very badly. We deal with it very badly, and the thing that, that made me go, oh, just then, was thinking, like, so the way that we were just saying, like, we don't want to rock up to a convention and be like, I haven't read, you know, any of my friend's stuff, and I haven't read that book that you're talking about, and, and you know, like, probably other people do that, but they do it with the bigger books, the Jody Picoults, you know, like... And they can get around, and, you know, like, and have a bottle of wine and, and, and have a chat about this book and all feel good about themselves because they've all read that book. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's true. And, and, and at least they're reading books. And one of the arguments I've made, this is one of the things I've learned from years of teaching is I've never criticized a student for reading Jody Picoult or before that Danielle Steele or, or for that matter, Stephen King, uh, because they're part of what in the States, at least, is a considerable minority, a small minority of people who read anything at all. Um, and I do think that writers like that, and I tried reading a couple of Danielle Steele books. She knows how to plot. She knows how to pull you through a story. Mary Higgins Clark knows how to pull you through a story. And um, I even met Mary Higgins Clark at, at one point and had a chat with her. And she wasn't that different from uh, a neighbor down the hall in my apartment building who, by her own description, writes historical romances for Harlequin, uh, in that they both see themselves as skilled craftspeople. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not ambitious writers. I, I, I don't think that Mary Higgins Clark ever had the great American novel that she wanted to write. I don't think my friend Wednesday, Wendy wants to write uh, you know, the, uh, some great work of art. They know how to do a certain kind of thing, and they do it well, and they can do it repeatedly and reliably. Um, and that may not be what 
people like us think of as advancing the art of the novel in some way, but it's certainly satisfying a huge audience. And it certainly is a separate set of skills. I mean, Robert Silverberg is one of the two examples from science fiction of people who probably could write anything they wanted to and get away with it are Bob Silverberg and Nancy Kress, um, because they know how to structure stories in all these sort of uh, formalistic ways. And I think they choose to write what they write. But I have a feeling if, if you wanted Nancy to write something uh, that was bestsellerish, she would know exactly how to do it. She might not choose to do it, but she would know how. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, okay, so I got an email, you know, not that long ago from somebody who was like, you know, I'm 23 and I'm a hip hop artist, you know, like I'm an independent hip hop artist. And like, your book was the first book I ever read. Oh. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, don't stop now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's about to get good. I know, you know, but but I think there was a level where because I had zombies and sex and you know plot that they could connect to it and 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 make it interesting, you know, yeah. like as relevant enough to their life that like you know, like it was really special and it is, it is. It's disheartening in the same way, you know, like oh my god, don't stop now. But they wrote back and like because I was like read Geek Love by Catherine Dunn if you yeah. like my book. Yeah. And they wrote yeah. back and like I read that. I'm good. And I was like, all right, you're good. I don't need to mentor you anymore. And like, it's okay. Welcome to the reading club. Yeah, you're one of us. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that I'm not laughing at the person who who read your book as the their their first book ever. It's just I I I I've. I kind of know and can imagine how it feels. So you're like, you started with that. Oh, no, quick, let's get you something good because that was mine. And I need you to read something good because that way, you know, we're going to feed it. It's like starting a fire. We're going to give it little bits. It'll be really good. And then you can be one of us too. (laughs) It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. I'm reading a book for pleasure at the moment. Oh, good. Uh, I'm reading the new Lars von Eisterbuchel book. Uh Her new Miles Verkostigan. Which Charles was never much of a fan of, uh, I don't think. This is the like 678th volume in the series, right? And it's not out, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't come out till November. And before you think that here Jonathan is uh, applying his insider knowledge and all those sort of things, I should tell you that I'm not the first person I know to read this book. I'm not the second. I'm probably about the sixth or eighth. Uh-huh. And I bought it because it's for sale. Mm. It's not out, but it's for sale. Oh, really? How does that work? Well, Bain, right, who are uh-huh. the most up-with-it audio, you know, sort of online publisher in the world, pre-sells their ARCs. So for 15 bucks, you can buy their e-ARC six months before the book comes out. Oh, really? That's an interesting, clever... Isn't that weird? I mean, I think that's the weirdest thing. I'm not trying yeah. to totally derail things because it's like, you know, you sort of, I sat there going, am I going to buy this book? I know I'm not going to review it because that's not what I do. It's not short fiction, so I shouldn't be spending my time reading it. So this mm-hmm. is not part of my assigned reading, but I really enjoy these books and I know I'll go through it quickly um, and it should be fun. So I'll go and I'll spend my 15 bucks and I'll download it. And as I was doing it, I thought, you're buying an unpublished book. That's weird. It is and is, but I think it's genius. Oh, it is. Oh, no, it absolutely is. Because what they're really doing is they're capitalizing. Or the, no, what they're doing is they're reaching out to the hardcore fan and say, you know, probably feeling comfortable that they will go and buy the, the, the final book as well anyway. And saying, here, have it early, have it first. The only barrier to you having it is your willingness to. Your, the fact that you're aware that you can and that. Um, you pay money for it, and not an outrageous amount of money, the amount you'd pay anyway. Well, and what they're doing also, which is very clever, is that they're essentially crowdsourcing reviews and commentaries. It's it's more and more difficult for science fiction genre books or fantasy uh, or horror to get get much mainstream coverage at all. I mean, that's one of the things we learned at the Locust. The number of times I reviewed what I thought was an important book, only to find out later it was the only review that appeared, it's kind of shocking, and what you what you can do with, with with a move like this is you create Twitter, you create Facebook buzz, and it's harder and harder to create buzz about new novels. I think it's a very clever idea. Yeah, I was really struck by what the word important with the, that you used there, and I was thinking like you know it's like this this wave that builds of interest around mm-hmm. something, and 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 that can ha- that can be building around when it comes out. It can keep building for ten years after, and it's only like with some perspective that you know like what actually is important. 
I think. Sorry, you go ahead, Gary. Well, I was going to. I was going to completely agree with that. My example uh, from a few years ago was what I thought was an absolute wonderful novel by Graham Joyce called *The Limits of Enchantment*, which just about disappeared in the United States. Mm. Um, after which. Uh, Graham got some good and deserved attention for The Silent Land, and now I hope he gets more for uh, some kind of fairy tale. But there's a point at which this this is a writer who's doing very, very important things. This one completely went under the radar for whatever reason, and now maybe that his profile is rising again. People will go back and discover that novel, but I still think it was an important novel when it came out. But but see, yeah, you, you mentioned important, and I'm sure we have a similar uh, feeling about important, if not what is important, the idea mm. of it. But it's such an unnatural um, thing. And it's interesting to see, I mean, people will say to you, you know, sort of, what do you think about this book? And you can almost have an opinion about it. I was thinking about this this morning. I, I don't know what you got, how you guys keep up. And I suspect now, Amelia, because you've moved around from being part of an, the, an industry journal as a, as a journalist to being a creator... You don't need to keep up in the same way. But I, keep, I try to keep up with the field. I read blogs. I read magazines. I read all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the book that doesn't – if it doesn't get discussed in those forums, it doesn't exist. It just goes away. It yeah. goes away. It's never I – mean, you know, and people will say to me I – mean, one of the reasons I, I had this sort of discussion with um, a friend of ours, Paul Cornell, about a book that was or wasn't going to win the Hugo. Mm-hmm. And he was convinced it was, and I was convinced it wasn't. And in fact, I said it wasn't even going to get. Bet running on that, didn't you? We did, and yeah. I, you know, and he 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 acknowledges he owes me twenty pounds, and someday we'll we'll be in a bar and I'll get him to buy me a drink. But the crux of it wasn't that the book that he thought was going to be up for the Hugo was a good or a bad book. Truthfully, in my mm-hmm. mind, the crux of it, the real truth of it was, there was no discussion of it. You know. And without that discussion, without that buzz in our field, you're not going to get up for the Hugo. You're not going to win the Hugo. It's never, mm-hmm. ever, ever going to happen. That's the nature of it, you know. So if a book's coming out now, like if I go and I look at, say, the, um, oh, say, the, okay, Locust List of June 2012, forthcoming books on its website. People mm-hmm. are talking about Existence by David Breen, and they're talking about Caliban's War by James Corey, and they're talking about, a few other of the books that are coming out this month. We're talking about some kind of fairy tale, but it's yet to have a broader discussion, particularly. Joe Lansdale's Edge of Water, which is coming out of a limited edition, the people are talking about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see, and people are talking a lot, obviously, about The Long Earth, which is the Baxter Pratchett book. Yeah. Uh, I've not hear, heard anybody really talking about, oh, I don't know, uh, Liz Williams' World Soul, or particularly about Keith Brooks' Alt.Human, or about... Lynn Flewelling's Casket of Souls. Now, mm. the fact that, that the, my comments have nothing to do with those books other than that they're sitting on a list and there's no discussion about them. And as mm. long as there's no discussion, there's never going to be the groundswell that gets you up for an award. And what every publicist and every publisher wants to know is how do you create that buzz? How do you create that groundswell? No one really knows. But it's like that thing I keep coming back to, that moment in Montreal in the dealer's room, and all three of us were there. Mm-hmm. When you know, Nightshade walk in, and there's Ross looking like Ross, and there's Jeremy looking like Jeremy, and they put the books on this table, and they, they've lost half their cartons, they can't find them, but they finally track a bunch of them down, they start cracking open cartons of The Wind-Up Girl, Paolo Bacigalupi's first novel, it hits the table, and you can hear the discussion go through the dealer's room. Yeah, that absolutely. Was- it's almost like you can yeah. hear the entire field stop and go, oh, turn around and go, oh, that. There, yeah. Yep, we need can, to have this that. This is going to be important. Mm-hmm. I, I and everybody wants to be part of that, I think. Oh, yeah. Absol- and I don't know how you make that happen. But I know that that's the thing, right? That's the shape and, mm-hmm. of how you get the discussion and the buzz and everything else and how you get to there from here. If you can somehow get it, but, but there has to be something else, and I don't know what it is. And it's not any formula. You can't say, write some you know, like really award-winning, cool short fiction and then put out a first novel. No, it's far more complicated than that. I mean, otherwise, for, amongst other things, that book would not have been rejected by as many publishers as it was before it was published, you know, right. which, which we all know is true. It had to do with where the field was at the time. Well, one of the things that I like about the field... Uh, and I think it's still very promising and energizing about the field, is exactly what you said earlier. Nobody knows. I keep going back to William Goldman's famous you know, line about his years in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. Um, and he was talking about how you make a blockbuster movie. They don't know. You know. Every year they'll put out a John Carter and they'll put out an Avengers and they can't figure out 
why one is working and the other one isn't. Um, and publishing, I think, is the same kind of way. Uh, but whether the I, I, it, it's magic, but the fact that it's magic means that you can have a wind-up girl every once in a while. You can have um, a quantum thief every once in a while. Uh, and uh, somehow these things get discovered actually by the readers. Uh, they, they, they are not foisted upon us by uh, publishers. We certainly know in the case of Nightshade by publishers with huge marketing machinery. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but the other get, thing that happens is that great books come along and go away again. Mm-hmm. And it's very sad. I mean, as you say, I mean, I agree with you completely about The Limits of Enchantment, which is a spectacularly good book. I mean, just a spectacularly good book and deserves to stand as classic, classic of the field. And if somebody came along to me and said, I'll give you $11.50 to write the 100 best fantasy novels of the last 40 years, one of those kind of books that uh, Broderick and DiFilippo have just done for science fiction, I yes. would put that book in there. I would too. Uh, I, I, I no longer subscribe to the nice, quiet, you know, you really have to read this, but that was one of those books where it was just so terrific. And I don't know what the next one will be. Uh, the danger, of course, is for you know that you close down. You go, well, okay, Graham Joyce gave me that, so I'll just keep reading Graham Joyce books because he's most likely to give me that, you know, the same thrill. But then mm-hmm. how do you ever find anything new? Gary, Amelia, we're rambling. Oh, good. Fun. I think we we've been rambling. And I think we we we've been rambling for an hour or so. I think that might be. About time to wind it up. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we could go on rambling for a while, but we are trying to keep these podcasts to within a reasonable shooting distance of an hour. Once upon a time, I did suggest changing the name of the podcast to the Cood Street Hour as much as anything. Well, I I like the sound of it, but also because I thought it gave us something to shoot for. You know, we could try and... But whenever they're good, whenever they're fun, they want to run on. But I think actually we, we can always come back. We can revisit this conversation. Sorry, yes, what? You used a, you used a phrase earlier, which could be a good title for a podcast, but maybe not ours. What? Um, 2012, a Skype oddity. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, well, this has been 2012, a Skype oddity. It has been a great pleasure having you on the podcast again, Amelia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Gary. And as, oh, as always, uh, Gary, it has been a pleasure. I will talk to you next week. We will talk next week. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.